You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello listeners and welcome to the 1931st edition of St Edmundsby News Talk for the 1st of June 2023. The editor of this edition is Liz Roberts, the producer is Harvey Johnson and your readers are Val Fletcher and Harvey Johnson. We should also mention our processing team who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We commence with the headlines. Exciting new era for council as coalition leader elected. Fresh start for town as Diane Hind takes over as new mayor. Paramedic Steve is nominated for prestigious volunteer award. My five-year-old saved my life, says mum after seizure. A new era begins at West Suffolk Council as the head of a coalition group has been elected leader marking the end of a Conservative hold. Councillor Cliff Waterman, leader of the West Suffolk Progressive Alliance grouping, was elected on Tuesday following a period of uncertainty after the Conservatives lost their majority in the local elections earlier this month. The District Council will now be made up of a partnership between the West Suffolk Progressive Alliance grouping, which consists of Labour, Liberal Democrat and Green members, and the Independents, under the title of the West Suffolk Working Partnership, WSWP. Despite the difficult task of managing disparate political views, the Bereson Edmonds Eastgate Ward councillor said he was ready to accept the challenge. He said, The challenge is to find common ground and move forward together on it. Most of us in the West Suffolk Working Partnership have worked together in opposition for the last four years. We know each other. We respect each other and, most importantly, we trust each other. We know we can work together for the benefit of everybody in West Suffolk. Between the groups in the partnership, we've got 38 councillors and we share a common purpose to improve West Suffolk. It's exciting. He said the partnership would work to address four key areas. Housing, the cost of living crisis, sustainability and growth. In particular, they wanted to move the district towards a high-skilled, high-wage type of economy. Councillor Waterman worked as an English teacher in schools across the county, including Storpland High School, Milden Hall Upper School and Westley Middle School in Bury. He is the Labour Group leader and works as a cyclist training officer at Suffolk County Council. In the meeting at which he was elected, he said he would not indulge in petty politics from the council chamber, following a proposal by Councillor Nick Clark, leader of the West Suffolk Conservatives, to suspend council procedure rules to allow for a recorded vote, which was accepted by members. Councillor Clark said he wanted transparency for residents and called for independent councillors to abstain from voting for a leader. He said... The independents are clearly the kingmakers. They can choose to remain truly independent, as voters believe they are, and abstain from the leader vote, or, alternatively, they can vote for Labour or the Conservatives. This is a matter of respect for the electorate. It would be strange for an independent councillor to turn a vote into a vote for Labour. What is the motivation behind propping up a minority Labour administration? Do the independents and Labour political strategies align? I'm not sure they do. However, Councillor Waterman said Councillor Clark's statement was misguided. There's no minority Labour administration. There is a majority West Suffolk working partnership, he said. West Suffolk is in very safe hands. It's in the hands of people who are totally committed to the well-being of our district. It's an administration that wants to listen and we want West Suffolk to be the best it can be. The new mayor of Bury St Edmunds is keen for a fresh start for the town after their previous mayor was suspended for receiving a police caution. 
Councillor Diane Hind has been elected as the new chair of Bury St Edmunds Town Council, meaning she automatically becomes town mayor. It is an honour and a privilege to serve as mayor, she said. I will be as inclusive as I possibly can. I want everyone to feel that the mayor is important to them. Councillor Hind added that she wants to make the town council as successful as possible by ensuring engagement with all parts of the local community. Councillor Hind was elected to the role following the suspension of former Bury St Edmunds Mayor Peter Thompson. Mr Thompson agreed to pay £100 in victim compensation in connection with an incident involving the head doorman of the gym bar in which he received a police caution in April. Peter Thompson lost his Morton Hall Town Council and District Council seats at the local elections earlier this month, but still sits as an independent councillor on Suffolk County Council. Councillor Hind said the incident was shocking and hopes that her appointment can be a fresh start for Bury St Edmunds. He's let himself down, he's let the residents down and he's let the town council down, she said. My sympathies are with the victim in this very distressing event. We hope to put this behind us and focus on the positives going forward. Having represented Tolgate Ward since 2015, Councillor Hind is also a district councillor where she represents the Labour Party. Donna Higgins, also a Labour district councillor representing the Minden Ward, will serve as the deputy mayor for Bury St Edmunds. A senior paramedic is delighted and proud after being nominated for the East of England Ambulance Service Volunteer of the Year Award. Steve Murrow, who lives outside Beck Row, has worked for the ambulance service for 31 years and has also volunteered for Suffolk Accident Rescue Service, that is SARS, since 2014. The 56-year-old, who does around 2,000 hours every year for SARS, has no idea who nominated him for the award and feels honoured that his work has been noted. Personally, I feel great because someone has recognised what I do and I'm very proud to have done this for over 30 years, he said. I hope SARS will be recognised for having a volunteer that gives up many, many hours for free, where the ambulance service is benefiting and the patient is benefiting. For example, I had to save the life of a 20-year-old man on the A11 recently who, without warning, had a cardiac arrest whilst driving. So it is pure satisfaction being able to save someone and make a difference like that to someone's life. Originally, Steve had wanted to become a firefighter and follow in the footsteps of his father, two uncles and two cousins, but at the time there were no vacancies available. So, after a stint in the military, he joined the ambulance service full-time on January the 18th, 1992, and since 2016 has worked part-time for them. He also volunteers about 40 hours a week for SARS, an emergency medical charity that was set up in 1972 where doctors and paramedics respond to critically ill patients. After many years of helping to save people's lives, Steve met a person recently whose life he had saved several years ago. He said, The first time I met Gary Wright, he was 100% dead. Three years ago, he had gone out with his wife and daughters to Bury St Edmunds and he had a cardiac arrest without warning in a cinema. We managed to bring him back and resuscitated him and when I saw him at a first aid course I was teaching at last week he now says that has completely changed his life. So for me, just seeing someone critically ill and then being able to see them again is so awesome. Steve's role sees him dispatched within a 20-mile radius around Mildenhall. Last year, SARS was first on the scene to 31% of the 560 jobs they attended, and Steve has been told that half of that percentage was him. This week he will find out if he made the shortlist for the East of England Ambulance Service Volunteer of the Year Award, but regardless of whether he makes it or not, he says he still feels valued in the area. A mum has praised her five-year-old son for saving her life 
after she suffered a seizure at her home. Donna Conway, aged 24, was at her home in Stowmarket, and her child Logan was eating breakfast as he got ready for school on Monday when she had a seizure. Logan reacted quickly and called 999 on his mum's phone, asking for an ambulance before then giving the address to go to. With the help of the operator, he helped put Dana in the necessary positions to protect her from hurting herself. Dana said, He has literally blown me away, to be honest. My five-year-old saved my life. The way he has dealt with everything is so inspiring, and the whole family and I are so proud and impressed with him. Since he was born, I've always called him my little sidekick, but he's more like my little superhero now for sure. Donna had her first seizure in March after she was diagnosed with epilepsy, and the latest was her fourth. Since the diagnosis, Donna has regularly checked with Logan about their address and what positions to put her in if she has a seizure. It's something we've drilled into him, and on the phone he did really well, making sure I was how I needed to be, she said. The operator said they had expected at least an eight-year-old at the house when the crew turned up, so they were very surprised to see a five-year-old. But Logan is such a caring person, regardless of what happened, as he's always looking out for his friends, and if any of us are poorly, he'll do everything he can to look after us. He's shy, but once you get to know him, he's full of energy and so well behaved. He's got such a funny little character and makes everyone laugh constantly. The first thing I did afterwards was check to see if he was okay, because I could have easily hurt him during the seizure, so I'm just so glad he's okay. And now for some items of general news. A 99-year-old Second World War pilot returned to his former East Anglian base after nearly 80 years this weekend. Ray Hobbs took to the skies at Horham Airfield, bringing tears to the eyes of onlookers. The event was part of the 80th anniversary reunion tour since arriving in Horham, organised by the 95th Bomb Group Heritage Association in Horham. From Ogden in Utah in the United States, Mr Hobbs was the pilot of a B-17 Flying Fortress. He was involved in seven missions during the closing stages of the war in May 1945. Six of these involved dropping essential supplies to Dutch population who were starving. He was in the UK with around 50 other US visitors, the families of men who served in the 95th Bomb Group. Pilot Rod Wheeler, who flies his light aircraft from the airfield, was coming in to land on Saturday, May the 27th, his first solo landing, when he had to abort as a convoy of Second World War vehicles transporting the American visitors drove onto the airstrip. Mr Wheeler learned that the veteran had piloted B-17s from that very airfield and then offered to take him for a spin over the airfield. Linda Woodward of the 95th Bomb Group Heritage Association, who organised the reunion, said he took the controls. It was very emotional. He was very emotional and the family were very emotional. It was a great effort for all the team who organised it. Of his time in the service, Mr Hobbs said, I flew mercy missions, one to The Hague, one to Amsterdam and four to Utrecht, dropping food to the Dutch people. I flew a cook's tour over part of Germany and France. In the end of the war, I flew with my group from Horham, England, to Bradleyfield, Connecticut, where we left our plane. The B-17 planes of the 95th Bomb Group were then flown to Kingman, Arizona, where they were destroyed. I was privileged to be at the controls of Sentimental Journey in September 2011, when I was 87 years old. A scheme designed to let people know where their four-legged family members will be welcomed is celebrating its fifth birthday. Dog-friendly Bury St Edmunds lists 140 businesses that won't turn away dogs. Branded dog bowls and paw print window stickers are used by those in the scheme. And the five-year anniversary is being marked with new and improved versions. 
The updated branding was enabled through donations of £500 each by our Bury St Edmunds, Camp Tales Doggy Daycare and Bury St Edmunds Town Councillor Richard Rout, who owns an impressive five dogs. Councillor Rout said, It's fantastic to live in West Suffolk, where our towns and villages are so welcoming of canine guests. Dog-friendly Bury St Edmunds is a fine example of this. For the last five years, businesses that allow well-behaved dogs have stood out from the crowd with window stickers and water bowls, which are particularly useful on those warmer days. It's a pleasure to support this brilliant initiative and give my congratulations to all those who have made it such a success. I'm sure it will continue to bring dog owners flocking to the town. The scheme includes a dog-friendly charter, laying out the responsibilities of business owners and dog owners. The charter explains that owners can refuse entry or ask someone to leave if a dog is unruly or out of control. Baytree Cafe in St John Street has now also become dog-friendly and joined the scheme. Mike Kirkham, Business Support Manager for our Bury St Edmunds, said We want as many people as possible to enjoy their visit to our historic town, so we are really pleased that so many businesses invite customers to do this alongside their canine companions. Owner of Camp Tales Doggy Daycare, John Kay, has championed the scheme since its start in September 2018. Mr K said, This scheme helps assist dogs gain valuable social skills while promoting local businesses. Bury St Edmunds is now one of the most dog-friendly towns in the country. A prestigious West Suffolk restaurant has been presented with a Michelin plaque, continuing to be the only eatery in the county to boast a Michelin star. Pea Porridge in Bury St Edmunds was presented with its first Michelin star in 2021, a decade after it was given the Michelin Bib Gourmand Award. It was revealed that the town centre restaurant had retained its one star when the Michelin Guide 2023 was released in March. It's like the culinary Oscars, said owner Justin Sharp, 46. Retaining our Michelin star for a second time is definitely something for our team to be proud of. Holding the only Michelin star in Suffolk, Mr Sharp added, not only is it a fantastical personal achievement, but it's also good for both Bury St Edmunds and wider Suffolk. We wear it with pride. On Friday, Pea Porridge was presented with a Michelin plaque to mark the achievement, celebrating our county's first Michelin star in more than 40 years. First opened in 2009 by Mr Sharp and his wife Jurga, the Pea Porridge name is a nod to the old town green, which was once located in front of it. The restaurant regularly varies its menu, taking inspiration from North African, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean influences. It hasn't, however, abandoned its Suffolk roots, with Mr Sharp and the team striving to champion local suppliers by utilising their ingredients wherever they can. Late last year, Pea Porridge received a specially commissioned watercolour house portrait from Andrew Whitehouse. The artist, who has recently retired from the NHS, chooses architecturally quirky, interesting and unusual buildings to paint, and the artwork now hangs inside one of the restaurant's three dining rooms for the enjoyment of customers and staff alike. Making a claim over road defects such as potholes has been described as a waste of time after figures for Suffolk revealed less than 6% were successful last year. A total of 221 highways insurance claims were made to Suffolk County Council, that is SCC for short, the Highways Authority, for incidents in 2022, but only 13 were successful and saw payouts, according to data provided to the Berry Free Press, using freedom of information. The previous year saw 400 claims and 43 payouts, that is 10.75%. Great Barton resident Adrian Graves, who ran his own consulting practice for more than 40 years, 
that specialised in areas including transport and infrastructure, last month called for an urgent and transparent review of the highways and infrastructure maintenance system across Suffolk. He said the number of highways insurance claims was probably but a fraction of the actual incidents and experiences of road users because they have come to realise that trying to make a claim and pursue it with Suffolk County Council is an utter total waste of time. He said, if only 10% of claims have been met, then that says the bar is absolutely set at an unrealistic and unacceptable level. And that leads on to the huge number of people that have experienced tyre damage, wheel damage, etc., but who gave up trying to pursue legitimate recompense. He had looked into making a claim for a tyre blowout caused by a pothole near Ruffham about a year ago, but decided not to pursue it, as he says the response he got from Suffolk County Council was so dismissive. Mother of two, Carly Francis, has been trying to pursue a claim after hitting potholes in Great Barton, wrote off her car, an incident that ruined the family's Easter and left her out of pocket by about a thousand pounds. Birmingham-based Carly, who used insurance money to help pay for a new car, had contacted SCC via email, but has been told to go through the formal claims process and provide the necessary evidence. According to the SCC website, claimants must contact customer services, who will send out a leaflet. Carly, who had already provided SCC with images of the potholes and damage to her car and evidence of the value of her written-off car, said, What more do they need for evidence? She said her insurance costs would rise significantly when it came to renewal if SCC did not take responsibility. Speaking of the low number of successful claims, she said, It's awful. It's not fair, really. Suffolk Highways said that while an incident may take place on the highway due to a pothole or other issue, this did not necessarily mean that Suffolk County Council was liable. It said, The Council is only liable to pay compensation if evidence is submitted that shows that we have been negligent in our inspections, maintenance or repairs of the roads. We are working to repair the roads as quickly as we can, following a challenging wintry season. This involves bringing in additional resource to help us repair potholes quicker and starting on our annual surface dressing and resurfacing programme. The Highways Act 1980, specifically Section 58, provides all local highway authorities with a statutory defence to defend claims for damage or injury caused by highway defects, including potholes. This defence can be used providing the local highway authority took reasonable steps to maintain the highway. Members of Extinction Rebellion took to the streets of Bury St Edmunds on Saturday to raise awareness of the use of pesticides. Around 20 people marched through the town centre to campaign against neonicotinoids, which are used by farmers across the UK and locally on crops such as sugar beet. The Berry branch of Extinction Rebellion was joined by the Norwich branch and there was drumming, singing and talks about pesticides. The group met at the Abbey Gardens and marched through the town with banners and placards and some protesters dressed up as bees. One of the organisers, Jennifer Tuck Marchant from Elmswell, said it went pretty well. We didn't have as many people as we'd hoped for. We picked up some people along the way who then followed us. We wanted to march to raise awareness that these pesticides are still being used even though they were banned in 2018. It is being used on sugar beet fields and the farmers that sell sugar beet to British Sugar are using these pesticides. Because the pesticides are extremely toxic, most of it ends up in the soil and the water, which has been found to be hugely damaging, not only to bees, but other pollinators. Jennifer added that the industrial scale of farming and the planting of one type of crop was not a natural ecosystem, 
and that more sustainable farming practices were the way forward. She said a mix of crops was the solution. A national petition has been set up, but the group says more needs to be done and are now thinking of other ways to inform the public about the issue. A Suffolk food and drink wholesaler is celebrating a major deal to supply a hospitality group. Ruffin-based Thomas Ridley expressed delight after winning a significant new contract to supply 37 city pub group establishments. The highly successful Suffolk food business was snapped up in January this year by multi-billion pound food service group Bidcorp of South Africa for an undisclosed sum. The Suffolk company's 280 strong workforce, headed up by Justin Godfrey, who is managing director and descendant of the company's founder, remained, along with the company name. The company continues to operate as a standalone autonomous business, keeping its name, brand, people and culture. City Pub Group owns pubs, restaurants and hotels in East Anglia, London, Southern England and Wales, including Aragon House in London, the Old Bicycle Club in Cambridge, the Georgian Townhouse in Norwich and Damson and Wild in Bury St Edmunds. The deal means Thomas Ridley will be supplying hospitality customers across a much broader geographical area. To service the contract, it has added 57 new lines as it supports the group's ongoing menu development. The food service supplier, which has a fleet of 50-plus multi-temperature vehicles, described it as an exciting and well-matched new partnership for the business. A new council leader has outlined the priorities for its administration and promised a greener and more sustainable direction to tackle community issues. Councillor Andy Mellon was elected as Mid-Suffolk District Council's new leader last Tuesday, which comes just weeks after the district recorded the first majority Green Council in the UK. Councillor Rachel Aburn was appointed his deputy, while the new chair of the council will be Councillor Roland Warboys, with Councillor Daniel Pratt as Vice-Chair. In his leader's speech, Councillor Mellon said the administration would refocus the work of the council in a greener and more sustainable direction, as well as addressing issues such as the cost of living, finding an affordable place to live and climate change. On climate change issues, he said, we can make a start and we can work with others, we can take a lead and I believe we can make a difference. So today we formally press the reset button on the Council's priorities and in the days, weeks and months ahead we will refocus the work of the Council in a greener and more sustainable way. He said the administration wanted to improve the livability of communities and support the provision of key facilities. Councillor Mellon said this might be the local pub, which also hosts the village post office or the food bank, two examples that are already happening. It could be redundant farm buildings repurposed as a microbrewery or a professional services centre or the village hall, which acts as a hub for community life. These kinds of small businesses and community connections are often what make neighbourhoods work and on which people depend and we want to build these up and support them. We want to see Mid-Suffolk thriving, not just economically, though that's important, but also culturally, socially, environmentally, sustainably thriving. The Abbey Gardens in Bury St Edmunds were buzzing with activity on Saturday for Abbey Alive. The free Natural and Living History Day explored the past <coughs> life and wildlife of the site through interactive walks, talks, trails, entertainment and a bio-blitz survey. Stalls, storytelling, face painting, a pop-up museum, craft activities and a collaborative community art project were some of the event highlights. Talks on hedgehogs, moths, heritage, water voles, 
insects, spiders, stag beetles, plants and biodiversity were also on the timetable. Abbey Alive was inspired by a successful BioBlitz Day in 2022. Feedback from that event inspired the new format celebrating the species living in the centre of the town. Steph Holland, one of the Abbey Alive organisers, said, It went really well. It was busy and the weather was hot. It looked like everyone was having a good time and we hope they learned lots about the Abbey. I quite liked having the mixture of heritage and environment and talking about life in every sense of the word. Steph said she hoped Abbey Alive could be repeated in the future after this year's event was made possible through a lottery grant. She added that visitors had enjoyed meeting actors throughout the site. One Suffolk business has created an afternoon tea with a chocolatey twist and there's a unique way to win the experience. At Queed's Bar and Grill, a Wonka-inspired afternoon tea will bring something new to Berry St Edmunds this summer. Paying homage to the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory movie, it features sandwiches, cakes, scones and sweet treats that have been designed to recreate scenes from the 1971 classic. And, staying true to the film's plot, there will be a race to find five golden tickets in order to win a free afternoon tea. Ben Hutton, owner of Queen's Bar and Grill, explains, I thought it'd be nice to do something themed, and we went with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because we've got a new dessert shop called Crumbs. At Crumbs, we're going to be selling Little Queen's Wonka Bars with five golden tickets to win a free afternoon tea for two. It's a good theme for people to just book, but also adds a little bit of novelty to coincide with the film that you could pop into the shop and have a chance of winning it for free. Mr Hutton opened Crumbs in Lower Baxter Street in November 2022 and said the shop would be filling a gap for unique desserts in the town. Also at the afternoon tea experience, customers will be treated to a chocolate fountain with goodies for dipping as a way to recreate the movie's iconic chocolate river. It will be available for Saturday bookings at midday or 2.30pm from June the 24th until August the 26th. (laughs) Campaigners fighting to improve Suffolk's roads are welcoming a £10 million injection of cash to fix them. The investment is to be made by Suffolk County Council, nearly doubling Suffolk Highway's £11 million annual road maintenance budget. It will be spent on rural roads, many of which have been blighted by potholes, and residential streets, which are maintained less frequently. Revealing the investment, Matthew Hicks, leader of Suffolk County Council, said, Let me be clear, the state of some of our roads is not good enough. We will set aside a further £10 million to be spent over the next 20 months, reaching locations across our county and I look forward to this being delivered with our new partner, Milestone. East Anglian Daily Times columnist and former BBC Radio Suffolk presenter Mark Murphy, who has long highlighted the issue of potholes, said, Any extra money has got to be welcomed. I, like many motorists, look forward to a smoother ride and less damage to our vehicles. Three tawny owls that seem to be the grand outlets of the famous Mabel, have been spotted at Christchurch Park in Ipswich. Ipswich Borough Council's parks team believes the trio are Matilda's children and Mabel's grand chicks. The birds have been spotted in the same tree and have been showing the same behaviour as Matilda, as they are often active during the day, which is unusual for tawny owls. Matilda's mum, Mabel, became the park's feathery friend and was well known by local walkers. The traditionally nocturnal bird used to live in a hollow in one of the park's trees and was named by staff from Christchurch Park. In 2012, the photographic bird made headlines when she showed off a new addition to her family with a baby owlet, which also became a popular attraction at that year's historic car run from Christchurch Park to Felixstowe. Matilda and her owlets 
already received a lot of attention in 2020 when they were first spotted in Christchurch Park. And that uh, item was uh, accompanied by a colour photograph showing the three little owl chicks sitting side by side on a branch, oh, looking very cute indeed. Yes. I've got a picture with mine as well. I'll, I'll describe the picture when I've just read this small article. Volunteers of the River Gipping Trust have completed work on a historic footbridge with the aim of recreating a more enjoyable walking route for the community. The Trust's 25 volunteers maintain and preserve the river that runs between Mendlesham, Stowe Market, Needham Market and Ipswich. The team has had a busy three years reinstating Howard's footbridge and they recovered around 500 bricks of the 230-year-old structure from the river bed to recreate the footbridge using some of its original materials. Ian Petchy, restoration manager, said it was a lovely sunny morning to open the bridge on Saturday. Anyone can use the bridge and you can walk from Ipswich to Stowmarket along the river. The project amounted to 10,000 volunteer hours of work and £20,000 of grant funding. Dr Dan Poulter, MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich, cut the bridge's ribbon and speeches were given to celebrate the volunteers. And my picture shows a lovely blue sky, this lovely bridge and about 25 people standing on the bridge and celebrating. And, you know, reading about that they recovered 500, 500 bricks and they spent 10,000 volunteer hours I mean, isn't that a labour of love? Absolutely. The sort of thing we like to hear about. It is indeed. One part of our recording that's always extremely popular with our listeners, we know, is the reader's letters. And my first one here is actually written by Barry Peters. He's the editor of the Berry Free Press. And this is what Barry writes. Telly Dr Amir Khan spoke passionately about her NHS when he visited Berries and Edmonds on Tuesday night. The Bradford-based GP urged better funding and for the essence of the NHS being free at delivery to be protected. He received a round of applause from the audience in the heart of this traditionally conservative region. Some things are universally supported, whatever rosette you wear. It was perhaps pertinent that Dr Khan was in town in the very week that a Green leader took over at Mid-Suffolk Council and on the very night that a Labour leader took over at West Suffolk Council, just as more claims of Partygate troubles beset former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Andy Mellon, Mid-Suffolk's new leader, spoke this week of his council going in a greener, more sustainable direction and I'm sure Dr Khan would have been purring at that. I got a sense of Dr Khan's gig that the NHS, the environment and green issues plus mental health provision matter more and more to people now, whatever their political colour. A consequence of Covid and the last three years? Maybe. Tax, spending, Europe, immigration will always get big headlines and demand huge sums of money. But I believe that electors at all levels are demanding more from politicians away from bottom-line politics. Those who can deliver on that will be the winners. And my first letter is written by John Dell of Shotley. I couldn't help but observe the contrast in the treatment of different immigrants this week. On Thursday, after many years of vilifying immigrants... The government released figures showing their promises to decrease immigration had failed, again. But perhaps that failure is a good thing. On the same day the figures were released, we heard the story of a Jamaican immigrant. He was being buried with full military honours. He had served as air crew in Lancaster bombers during the last two difficult years of World War Two. A true war hero. I suspect that had he arrived here today, he would have been treated very differently. His true worth would never have been allowed to flower and help our country. How many other heroes are out there? Richard Stewart of Ipswich uh, writes under the heading When to Feed Garden Birds. 
A leaflet inside a recent wildlife magazine asked readers if they were stocked up for feeding nesting birds during the summer. A few decades ago, it was customary for such feeding to occur from autumn to Easter. In my opinion, feeding all year round is counterproductive for several reasons. First, whole peanuts can actually choke young birds, and because feeders are exposed to increased heat in the summer, there is more chance of infection being passed on to feeding birds. This has particularly affected birds like green finches. Adult birds will become tired when feeding nestlings all day, and instead of hunting through vegetation, they will obviously visit the feeders. This will make them an easy target for birds of prey, such as sparrowhawks, with their own young to feed. In my view, there should be enough natural food available without the need for feeders, and to make wild birds reliant on artificial food all the year is not a helpful strategy. Graham Day writes from Stowmarket. I was very pleased to see the picture in the Berry Free Press of May the 19th of the memorial service for VE Day held in the Appleby Rose Garden in Berry St Edmunds. The generation of John Appleby and my late father fought against tyranny and oppression and would be saddened now that war again scars the European continent. For me, the Rose Garden always provides a peaceful haven from the hurly-burly of the day outside the Abbey grounds, giving us a chance to contemplate and reflect. By his own sterling efforts, a grateful John Appleby gifted a wonderful asset to Bury St Edmunds, turning an uncultivated area into a remarkable and beautiful place. However, I'm only sorry that West Suffolk Council always seems to be blind as to the Appleby connections. By way of a trail, this would interest and enhance the visitor experience. More perhaps needs to be done. We should never be careless of our history. And the next letter is written by Barry Wood of Broad Road, Oldham Broad. In a democracy, we should vote. But I'm baffled as to why we continue to vote for any political party. With sleaze, manifesto pledges broken, lying, bullying, deceit, shameless dishonesty, will anything ever change? With food inflation at 16%, we've been informed that we have to be poorer. But does that apply to MPs? with a salary of £85,000 plus generous expenses. Many MPs have a second income of thousands of pounds, including Conservatives Lee Anderson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Labour's Jess Phillips and David Lammy. This cannot be justified. When we see nurses having to go to food banks, then seeing their MP queue in the House of Commons for their gourmet meals subsidised by the taxpayer, the health service is being decimated and anti-trade union laws are seeing peaceful protesters hit with the threat of prison. Now, 7,000 ASTRA employees are facing the sack if they do not accept a pay cut. This is not what MPs were elected for. They should be looking after their constituencies, not themselves. John Davis of Bury St Edmunds, he also refers to Barry Wood's letter... I can understand the frustration of Barry Wood when he writes to say he is baffled as to why we continue to vote for any political party. He lists the reasons which give him cause for concern due to the attitude of various MPs and wonders, will anything ever change? Changing our voting system to one of proportional representation has been the ambition for many people for a number of years. Belgium introduced proportional representation 123 years ago this month, but many of our politicians like to keep the first-past-the-post system because they know it gives them a safe seat. The parties choose the one person we have to vote for and consequently they get voted back again and again and again. With party percentage proportional representation, Four constituencies are combined into one voting area to give the voter a choice of four same-party candidates. 
the most popular parties and persons are returned. The percentage of party seats match the percentage of party votes. This is achieved with one vote on one voting paper, and the voters get what the voters voted for. <laughs> now, this letter is by Graham Day of Stowmarket. <clears throat> As time goes by, it is often necessary to revisit items which have been kept for many years to decide whether or not one should keep them. A surprise discovery of a set of dominoes set my mind racing. True, sometimes we played them at home, but in past years they were one of the staple recreational games in public houses. Also, what other games were played in pubs during my exile in Banbury in the 1980s? The local wine and beer circle arranged skittles matches with teams from hostelries in Banbury and Brackley using the in-pub skittle alleys. My mind then went back further to the 1970s. One summer, Monday evening, my friends and I left the confines of Ipswich and visited pubs in Crowfield, Gosbeck and Coddenham. Of the three, only the Crowfield rule still remains. The first call was at Coddenham. We marched into the bar, wearing flared trousers and with shoulder-length hair, and ordered some beers. A small group of locals were playing dummies in the bar, and their looks certainly could kill. As intruders in their space, we hurried up and drank our ales and left. On Saturday nights, our rendezvous was a vaults bar at the Golden Lion Hotel in Ipswich. At weekends, the gossip in the bar was always on parties which might be worth going to, an approach which was often called gate-crashing. One particular Saturday we found out that there was a party at Glavering Hall, near Wickham Market. We set off early, calling at Woodbridge for some refreshment at a pub which I believe is no longer there called the Seckford Arms. We walked into the pub bar. The pub was packed. The request for four pints of bitter, please, was met with a loud shh from the landlord. It was eyes down, as the whole pub bar, lounge and snug were engaged in a serious game of bingo, which, as far as I can recall, was the only time we found bingo called in a pub. We left, and were soon driving through Parkland towards Glavering Hall. However we got there in the dark without sat-nav or even maps, I will never know. Going inside, we soon found the party, which was in a vaulted basement, very atmospheric, and an ideal venue. However, the only drinks available were cordials and squashes. It was a children's party. Somehow on the great vine wires had got crossed. Still, it was a different Saturday night. After that experience, I don't recall many party trips ever again. Can any other readers recall long-lost pub entertainments. And Vivian Tincombe from Martelsall Heath writes, Regarding Bernard C. Mill's letter of May the 26th concerning the downside of computers, I found the letter very interesting. When I go to the bank, I too get asked if I do internet banking. Internet banking is good for people who can't get out don't want to go into town, or for those who find it more convenient. They're helping people who might want to do this. However, to say, to save your jobs, sounds a little patronising, like you're doing them a favour. No wonder it didn't go down well. I work in retail and have the same thing set to me, and I don't appreciate it either. Sometimes the way you say things might be appreciated more, something like, I like to see and speak to a real person, which sounds like you do actually care about whether or not they are still employed. Ployed. And now we have a couple of feature articles for you, and the first one which I shall read is from uh, local historian, author and tour guide Martin Taylor. And he's writing, Honouring a Man of Conscience... In 1907, twelve stone plaques to notable people were erected in Bury St Edmunds to help celebrate the wonderful pageant of that year. One of these, to Thomas Clarkson, at 6 St Mary's Square, recorded the fact that he was promoter of the Emancipation Bill of 1833, which abolished slavery. 
Thomas Clarkson was born in Wisbeach in 1760, the son of the Reverend John Clarkson, headmaster of the local grammar school. Attending St John's College, Cambridge, Thomas went on to write an essay which dealt with man's inhumanity to each other in the world on a very controversial topic, slavery. The essay won the college member's prize in 1785. This subject occupied him for the rest of his life, and moving in like-minded circles such as Quakers and nonconformists, he decided to commit himself to the abolition of this cruel trade. He married Catherine Buck, the daughter of prominent Berry businessman William Buck, also a nonconformist, and the Clarksons lived in St Mary's Square from 1806 to 1815. For much of his early life he worked hand in hand with that other great abolitionist, William Wilberforce. It is this evangelist who is given the major credit for the 1807 Slave Trade Act that ended British trade in slaves. However, it was certainly the unstinting work of Clarkson that led to it. His outspokenness caused a rift in later life with the Wilberforce family, who felt that their father deserved a lion's share of the accolades. Nevertheless, Thomas Clarkson travelled widely, trying to influence governments and despots alike to get rid of slavery, even approaching the Tsar of Russia to abolish serfdom in that country. Thomas and Catherine were friends with the poet William Wordsworth, who even dedicated a sonnet to his friend. Another honour bestowed upon Thomas was the freedom of the City of London in 1839. Thomas died in 1846 at Playford Hall, Ipswich, where he had lived in his later years. He was 86 years old. And my feature is about Cavendish. There was a little blood and quite a lot of mud, but the hardy bunch of walkers reviving an ancient tradition in a Suffolk village already knew it was not going to be a walk in the park. And while the words of the man who led the expedition to beat the bounds of their parish reveal that it was tough at times, it was also hailed as a brilliant day. Long grass, tricky terrain, nettles, ditches and quagmires lay in wait for the 18 people and a dog who set out on a May morning to symbolically mark the boundary of Cavendish. Seven hours later, the finishing line was in sight and those who stayed the complete course, including Freddy the Wheaton Terrier, arrived exhausted but elated at the village green for a celebratory drink at the Five Bells pub. Special permission had been given by landowners to walk where there was no public footpaths which was most of the 13-mile trek. It was not for the faint-hearted, and in places meant scrambling through hedges and across ditches, and even ducking under a barbed wire fence, which snagged a couple of victims. But that did not stop determined residents rekindling the custom of walking the margins of their village, which would once have been done every year with people beating landmarks like trees and boundary stones with branches as they went. Beating the Bounds dates back at least to Anglo-Saxon times when before the days of maps and written title deeds, memorising physical boundaries was crucial. It was the only way to discourage occupants of neighbouring settlements who might be casting envious eyes over your land. Alison Kenny, a keen walker who writes up local walks for the Cavendish Village magazine, was one of this year's beaters. She says that in past times, beating the bounds was often done during rogation tide, the fifth week after Easter, when prayers could also be said for the crops. The priest of the parish, with the church wardens and parochial officials, headed a crowd of boys who beat the parish boundary markers with green boughs, usually birch or willow. The object of taking boys along was supposedly to ensure that witnesses to the boundaries should survive as long as possible. Many English parishes have kept the custom as a way of strengthening the community and giving it a sense of place. The 2023 circular route began at the village green and followed the river to the outskirts of Clare. It then headed up the side of the valley towards Poslingford, 
skirting past Stansfield and Hawkerden, passing by Glemsford, then home. After a chilly grey start, the sun shone, and we were blessed with a beautiful day, said Alison, a retired nurse and midwife, who went prepared to treat minor mishaps with a bag of plasters and soothing creams. Much of the first part of the walk was uphill with some steep climbs. As we know, this part of Suffolk is definitely not flat, she said. The views were wonderful, just beautiful rolling English countryside, because we'd had so much rain it was so lush. As the majority of the route was not on footpaths, mainly hedgerows and field margins, it was fascinating to see well-known views from different angles. The terrain wasn't always easy, with tractor furrows and long grass hiding the occasional hole. We negotiated deep ditches, found ways through holes in hedges, and carefully climbed through barbed wire. Some people got mud and water in their shoes. The ground was uneven, with tractor tyre tracks in places, and sometimes you couldn't see where the ruts were. Holes dug by badgers, foxes and rabbits added to the hazards, but she said despite blisters, nettle rashes and aching limbs, it was a wonderful, enjoyable and rewarding day. Few of us were used to walking 13 miles in a day, and we were generally pleased our parish boundary was not longer. I'm not saying it was the highlight, but the five bells was a very welcome sight after about seven hours of walking. My step counter went into shock as it recorded 39,995 steps. A pint of cold beer definitely went down a treat. Far from being discouraged, the bound beaters are now talking about making it an annual event once again. Different generations shared a passion for horticulture during a class visit to allotments. Last week, reception pupils from St Edmundsbury CEVA Primary School in Bury St Edmunds enjoyed a morning at Cotton Lane Allotments. The class visited Kingsgate Community Allotment, run by Kingsgate Church, and three other plot holders were also involved. There, they planted seeds to take back to school, observed mini-beasts, and identified the fruit and vegetables growing. Claire O'Riordan of Kingsgate Community Allotment said, The allotment tiers loved passing on their gardening wisdom and experiences and were cheered by the pupils' eagerness to engage with the natural world. She said it was very heartwarming seeing the different generations sharing a passion for horticulture. Teacher Joe Clark said the children shared their curiosity with the gardeners and were inspired by watching nature come alive. Wonderful thought. Indeed, yes. We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmund's Been News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you have been given. Alternatively, you can put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Harvey, Val and Liz, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast 
was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.